right. Would you please remain standing as we honor the reading of God's word? This is Exodus chapter 23, starting at verse 1 and going to verse 8. It says, You shall not spread false, a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many, so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Go ahead and have a seat. Thank you so much for coming today, and I, I just, I just want to share with you that um, Mike will be back next week today. He is on a plane uh, headed towards Kansas City as he continues to work on his, his doctoral program. And so today it is my honor and my privilege to step in and to add to the series, The Law of God. Now, if you're joining us for the first time or if you're joining us for the first time online, I'd like to emphasize that when we are studying the Ten Commandments, when we're referring to the law of God, we're doing this because it, it leads us to the gospel. There are times where, where, where people of faith like to come together and we look at the laws of God and we get this sense of self-righteousness that comes with it because we think, oh man, look how good we're doing. Or we use it, we weaponize it to look at others and say how bad they're doing. And that's not the point of what we're doing today. As a matter of fact, I hope that when you leave here, if, even though we might wrestle with hard concepts and things that may be convicting, I hope that you are encouraged. I hope that you don't feel shame or guilt because our guilt, our shame has all been dealt with by the cross of Jesus Christ. So today, it is my honor and my privilege to be able to speak on the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment is found in Exodus chapter 20. It is verse 16. It simply says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You know, if you, if you were to do a Google search, you know, if you go... I don't know why I went to Pinterest, but of all places, but like I went to Pinterest. I was just looking at cultural things of how we like to summarize the Ten Commandments. And you look at all these memes or these other things that are happening. Most people will look at the Ninth Commandment and they'll chalk it up to simply don't lie, which is pretty good. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. Kind of like last week's sermon, sermon, the series was, or the message was don't steal. All right, we get that. But you know, and, and, the concept of not lying, though I think it's, it's, it's all throughout the Bible, there's something else that we need to see here with this commandment. But listen, just because I talk to, or I say that there's something else behind it doesn't mean the Bible doesn't teach us not to lie. As a matter of fact, if you look at Revelations chapter 22, verse 15, this is the Apostle John speaking of the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth, and he's talking about those who are going to be outside of the kingdom of God. He writes in verse 15, 
outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So lying, falsehood, it's not, it's not really looked upon as a good thing, right? As a matter of fact, actually, if you look back in the book of Acts, in chapter 5, this is the establishment of the church when God has shown up and the Spirit of God now dwells among the people of God and he is establishing for the first time the church age, the very age that we are a part of. God establishes the church must be started with integrity. And so in this story in Acts 5, we see that there is a couple of people who come and they're trying to lie their way into popularity with the church and God shows up and does something about it. In, in, in Acts chapter 5, verse 3 Peter says to this man, Ananias, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? You see, if you read the context of that story, there was a husband and a wife, Ananias and Sapphira. They sold their land, and to look good, to look good with the rest of the church, they kept part of the money for themselves, but they came to the church and said, hey, we sold our land, and this is everything that we got from that sale as to look like they were being sacrificial, to earn brownie points with everyone else who were part of their community. Peter goes on to say, hey, you didn't have to do that. You didn't, this, this land was yours. You didn't have to lie about this. But then what we see is in verse 5, it says, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. As in God takes seriously the establishment of his people, God takes seriously the establishment of his entities himself, the people that represent him, that when the church was starting, he was not going to have liars among them. This was kind of a hard lesson. We actually just went over this with the kids a couple months ago, and some of the kids were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If I lie in church, am I going to die? Maybe. I can't say you won't. Right? But that is a very serious thing. And then what we see is in Proverbs, we go back to the Old Testament. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, it says this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Notice there is something spoken of twice. Lying. We actually see the act of it and the person who practices falsehood. So it's clear that throughout the Bible, there's, there's a pretty simple standard of, hey, don't lie. But here in the ninth commandment, the ninth commandment just doesn't have a couple words to say don't lie. It actually has a lot of meaning and context behind it. It says you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I would argue that the ninth commandment addresses something deeper than lies, but in fact, it addresses the concept of justice. The ninth commandment is deeper than lies, but in fact actually addresses the concept of justice. And let me show you what I mean by that. Because if you look at the language, like I said, it says you shall not bear false witness, implying that someday you will be a witness. 
As in, you, it's painting this picture that you will be part of an inquiry, a formal inquiry. Someone's going to ask you a series of questions about an event or a person so that they can do their job, as if they are trying to figure out what is happening. And the Bible here says that you, it's not, not that you shouldn't do that, but, but when you go to do that, when you're a part of this system, a part of this inquiry, that you shouldn't put together a false report. And a better, a better explanation of this or a better argument for the fact that this is more about justice than just lying actually is the expansion of this commandment in Exodus chapter 20, 23, verses 1 through 8. You see, if you're not familiar with the book of Exodus, you should know this. That Exodus, the first 19 chapters, are about the Exodus. They're about the people of Israel who were slaves in Egypt, being taken away from it, being led into freedom back to the promised land. If you're familiar with the Prince of Egypt, that movie, right? It's, it's that part. That first, the first 19 chapters of them going and forming a nation. But then chapters 20 through the rest of the book of Exodus, 20 through 40, it is a single instance where God is showing up in Mount Sinai and he is unveiling to them who he is and he is establishing a relationship between himself as their God, the person who has set them free from captivity, and them who are to be his people. That through these, this last half of the book, these, these 20, 21 chapters, God is setting the rules and saying that if you're going to be my people, these are the things you need to know. And the Ten Commandments, they're kind of like a preamble, and the rest of the book kind of expands more on the commandments. So that is why I led us to read chapter 23, verses 1 through 8, because it comes back to the concept of not bearing false witness. And it goes into the concept over and over again of not perverting the justice of God. Now, if we're going to take a closer look into this section of the Bible, verses 1 through 3, at least, of Exodus 23, what you'll find that in Scripture it lists out the three perversions of justice. There are three perversions listed here of justice, and the first one from verse 1 is a false or a malicious witness. Verse 1 says, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. That first sentence is pretty self-explanatory. Don't spread a false report. But then there's an adjective that goes to describe later the intent, the heart of a false witness, and that is someone who is malicious. And in the original language, in the Hebrew, when we look at this, the word malicious tends to lean towards someone who is destructive, who is fiery, who has the intent to destroy. So this paints a picture of someone conspiring with another person to lie, to spread a false report so as to destroy someone else in their report. Much of this has a lot to do with gain. And what I mean by that is, is this. If you look at the context of when these commandments are brought up, it comes after a bunch of other rules and laws are passed down by the Lord. 
Today we're speaking of the ninth commandment, so it implies that there are eight commandments before that. Today, to expand on the ninth commandment, we are looking at chapter 23. So you know what comes before chapter 23? Chapter 22. And in chapter 22, we see commands of re- that, that, that command the people of Israel about how to go about restitution and how to go about social justice among their tribe. That's how to make things fair and to care for the widows, the orphans, and all these things. And in that, there is opportunity for the laws of God to be weaponized against the people of God for personal gain. If you go to chapter 22, and I won't go there, I'll just summarize it for you, but if you go to the very beginning of chapter 22, you see that restitution begins with if someone destroys your property, whether it's an ox or a shed or something like that, the person who destroys it, they are to give you three to five times more than what it was valued as to make sure that you are cared for and taken care of. Well, if you are someone of ill repute, you can see here that in this legal system that God has created, there is an opportunity here to con someone, to entrap someone in a false charge so that you are made off with better, with, with gain. It's, it's common, and it happens a lot, that people will look at a system and will exploit the weaknesses of that system, not because they genuinely needed that help or they needed to they use that system to just to bring about true justice, but they are trying to better themselves off. In our world today, especially as, as a minister, and when we used to run the electric bean, I would run into kids who all the time would want Personal references. They would want me to be their reference to go get jobs. And I'm, most of the time, I'm more than happy to do so. But there are individuals who know they didn't do a very good job, but yet they would still ask me, and they would ask me to lie and say that they did well when they worked for me. There's a problem with that, right? And yet we do that. As a matter of fact, there are also other times where we've seen people, the, the ugliest of things happen in divorce court. When people come together and there is this, this, this fighting amongst two separate parties and people are out for blood, and instead of going about what's doing what's fair and what's right, it is about retribution and destroying the other party. So we abuse the legal system at the expense of children and families so that we can destroy someone else. And right here, the Bible says, do not be a malicious witness. That in your heart, your intent should not be to destroy the life of another person. Because if you have that intent, odds are you will be the kind of person who will pervert the rules, the justice of God for your own gain. And that is something that God will not put up with. In Proverbs 15, Proverbs 19, verse 5, it says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Verse 9 goes on to say that a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. This is the idea, right, that God doesn't want us to abuse the systems that he's put up together, that the laws, the rules, the statutes he's put together, he's put there in place to care for one another, to make sure that we are cared for as well. And when we are malicious, when we take that opportunity to hurt others with it, we have perverted God. We have perverted his things, and we are misrepresenting him, and he does not want that, for he is a holy and just God. 
Now, the second perversion is falling in with a crowd. Falling in with a crowd. In verse 2, it says, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. I think the simplest way to look at this is peer pressure. Has anyone here ever dealt with peer pressure? Peer pressure is a very real thing. And you know what's interesting is that peer pressure is a very human experience. It doesn't matter if you are someone without authority and you, you feel weak and, the, and, and you're the one pressured into it. You, are, you feel that just as much as anyone else who has authority, who has power, and they feel pressure as well to go along with angry mobs. As a matter of fact, you can see the example of that. If you go to Matthew chapter 26, verses 69 through 70, it says, Now Peter was sitting outside in, outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them, saying, I don't know what you mean. This is the story of, Jesus when, or of Peter when P Jesus already told Peter that he was going to deny Jesus three times. Peter, watching Jesus go through this false trial, scared for what's going to happen to him because he associated with Jesus, when he's confronted with it, he says, No, I'm... I'm not with this guy because he genuinely fears for his own well-being. And that's why he succumbs to peer pressure and says, oh, I'm one of you. I'm, this guy is crazy. Now, that's an example of someone who honestly doesn't have a lot of power. And it makes sense that he would feel vulnerable because at that time he was just a fisherman and a disciple of Jesus. But look at someone else who has power. As a matter of fact, actually on the other end of Jesus' trial, it's Pilate. In Mark 15, 15, it says... So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate, who was a Roman official, who oversaw the entire province, who had legions behind, who had power and authority, was scared of an angry mob. Now, historically, we know that if, if he could have lost his his life because there was so much upheaval, unrest in the province that he oversaw. And because he feared for that, he went along with an angry mob, even though he found Jesus to be innocent. And they, he allowed him, Jesus, to be crucified. It doesn't matter who we are, because peer pressure from an angry mob is ever real. This year has been incredibly challenging. You know, in, in the year 2020, as we've seen so many causes and people groups and stuff just rise up and be incredibly upset and, uh, and angry, and some of it I can understand, some of it I, I'm still wrapping my mind around, and yet there is so much emotionally charged anger by what, whatever is happening that so many people have made these stances because they, they don't really... They don't genuinely believe what this angry mob believes, but they know that the mob is powerful, and if we don't appease that my livelihood or my concern or my, my family, someone's going to get hurt, and I need to side with them. And here the Bible is telling us that when we do that, if we violate our own conscience and what we know to be true to appease an angry mob, we pervert the justice and the systems of God. Years ago, I had a friend who... who I still have him as a friend. He, he's alive. <laughs> 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 he, 
who attended this church, and he eventually got a job in Olympia. So he started to commute there for a while, and he, worked, he got a, a government job, and he, he worked on HVAC systems. The first week was very hard for him because I know that when he got there, he was a man who liked to work hard. He knew that God had blessed him with a mind, the ability to do well, so he wanted to work hard. And when he got there, he worked hard. He worked so hard that after like a couple of days, his crew leader said, hey, what are you, what are you doing? And he said to his crew leader, well, I, this is the job that we need to do, and we can get this done in like a day or two, and then we can move on to the next thing. And his crew leader said, well, you need... You need to slow down. You need to stop. Because you're doing so well that you're going to make the rest of us look really bad. And the rest of us then are going to have to step up and work just as hard as you if you keep doing that. So I, it would be better if you just stopped what you're doing and just hung out with us and let's just milk this for all we can. You're, you're, some of you are laughing and, and chuckling at that. I mean, we have, we have jokes about government work or whatever, but here's the thing. That's a real situation. There are people out there who will take advantage of loopholes and systems, and they don't want to be caught with that, and so they pressure the rest of us to step in line with them so as they won't get caught, or so that justifies their own choices. And we, the people of God, we can't do that. We can't. And as hard as that may be, we are called to stand up and to stand for the righteousness of God. We are called to not bow down to the crowds, and yet I know it is hard to do so. My friend, who, who I mentioned this story, eventually, within a couple weeks, he quit that job, and he found something else to do. Because he could not compromise his own integrity and still work there. It, was, it did not sit right with him. Now, the last perversion that we see in the first three verses comes in verse 3, where it says, Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Let's read that again. Nor shall you be partial to a who? A poor man in his lawsuit. This, this verse speaks of the idea of favoritism. Favoritism for others. And it's fascinating to me that, that when this is written, they intentionally write favoritism for a poor man. Because man, does this convict my heart so much. Because if you looked at the first two perversions, right, the idea of being malicious or even just siding with an angry crowd, you can see that a lot of that could be argued behind the idea of just personal gain, being selfish. But in this instance, we see here that a corruption or a perversion of God's justice is the idea that we're bending the rules to help someone that we favor, that we like. But when we do that, everything starts to fall apart because we're showing partiality is what we're doing. We're showing favoritism, and that, that undermines the entire integrity of who God is and why those rules or why those regulations or why that system is even there. And partiality is not something that we want in a justice system. For those of us who have to make tough decisions, we have to be able to take our personal feelings and divorce them from the duty that we have. Leviticus 19.13 says, you shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. 
But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. So we can't show favoritism for the poor and for those who lean the other direction. You can't show favoritism for those who are quote-unquote great. Because we are all created in the image of God and we have to do what duty demands us. But favoritism is something that churches do struggle with. If you read the, the letters of Paul in the New Testament, you know that there are several churches in the New Testament that struggle. They favored the rich because that church got money from the rich and they could do things with it. They favored the rich over the poor. We can't do that. But we also can't favor the poor and bend rules to help people because it undermines the system. And let me illustrate to you what I mean by that. Sometimes people ask me, why are my kids so hyper after church? Well, let me explain why. I love giving the kids candy. There, so there are, there's a secret stash in this building of just a mountain of candy. Don't let the kids know that because they will look for it. They will. But the kids know there's a system. If it's their first time being there, they get a piece of candy. If they haven't been there in months, they get a piece of candy. If the kids watch the video and we go through the lesson and they can answer some questions as to what's, what the story was about, they get a piece of candy. If they go home with the coloring sheet and they like, somehow are able to do like, their, their at-home devotions, yes, I give out homework, right? And they bring it back, they get a piece of candy. There's, there's all, the kids know for sure, like, these are the ways they can earn candy. Everyone has equal opportunity to earn a piece of candy. Equal opportunity to earn a piece of candy. But every now and then, there's a kid who just didn't bring something or didn't bring their Bible or they just, they just for some reason, has, something has, hasn't happened for them in order to get a piece of candy. And then what happens is they look at me with their big, wet puppy dog eyes and they get kind of like, oh, they get kind of complainy. And sometimes, it's true, sometimes they'll do the whole like just, you know. And they're like, Andrew, can I have a piece of candy? And man, they are pulling at my heartstrings right now, right? He's like, everyone else got candy. I didn't get any candy. And I'm like, uh, well, what if you colored this right now? I was like, oh, but coloring is too hard. I'm like, what? <laughs> or, you know, I give them options. But listen, listen. There are, there are times when eventually, this has happened numerous times, okay, that a kid will ask, and I'm like, oh, man, I just want to be nice. I want to bless you. So then I, I look around to make sure no one else is looking. <laughs> all right? And then I go, all right, here. So I, I've been, actually, I broke my own rules. Kid gets excited. He runs off. Now, what has happened 10 out of 10 times it's eventually the other kids find out what's going on. And then chaos just ensues from that. Because what the kids have learned is this. Instead of taking the time to earn and do what they're asked to do, to earn that piece of candy, right? They all have equal opportunity to do it. What they've learned is that their choices don't have consequences. But here's the thing. Consequences of your choice bring meaning to your choice. Consequences of choice bring meaning to your choice. So what happens is those kids, they're not, they're not learning a sense of reward and, and of work and reward. What they're learning is if we just play with Andrew's emotions, we'll get what we want. 
If we just tug at Andrew's heartstrings and be really emotional about it, we'll get what we want. If I kick and scream and complain enough times, eventually Andrew will cave and give us what we want. And this has happened numerous times, okay? (laughs) But you can see, this, 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 this microcosm of example is exactly why we can't show favoritism. Because in the large scale of things, when we go on to just how the world operates, there are people who want to be shown favoritism, who want to be rescued from their own mistakes or their own consequences while they're going through the system of how we reward or reprimand people. And they want to be rescued from that, and they want us to bend the rules for them, and they play with our emotions. They make emotional arguments. But we can't show favoritism or else it undermines the entire system. It's hard when that's the case. And I, 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 I get that. I'm, I, I'm very in touch with my emotions. <laughs> and I get when people make emotional charges, and I get it, but we have to stand strong. And we have to say that we uphold the law of God. Because I, don't, don't hear this. Because some people could hear this message right now and say, like, Andrew, are you saying that we aren't to care for the poor and the downtrodden? Are we not to take care of, of our people? Are we not supposed to, you know, fight for their ability to live and all these things? Like, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is if your love for those who are down and downtrodden is here, that's great. But your love for the justice and the righteousness of God needs to trump that even more. I'm not saying lower your love, but raise your awe for the Lord higher than that. For his ways, his statutes, his meanings, all his things, that needs to rise up because that is what brings life. Oftentimes when we see people going through struggle, sometimes we want to break the rules so we can help them. Sometimes sometimes that's God disciplining someone that he loves. So as they grow in character, as they grow in repentance and and righteousness with him, who are we to get in the way of that? So that was the first three verses, and then we move on to verses four and five. And I love four and five because it seems so random, but it's it's not. We're talking about these rules, these regulations. We're talking about the justice of God. Then all of a sudden we start talking about donkeys. Verse 4 says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from, living, or you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. The idea of an enemy here is someone in this context often is seen as someone who you've had legal troubles with. But honestly, an enemy is someone that you are someone, someone that you have come in collision with. Someone that you are at odds with. And in this instance, what we're saying is that if you're seeing someone who is struggling with their own life, if you're seeing them struggle with their property, right? Because back then that was, like, that was their livelihood, that was their properties, oxen and donkeys and sheep and all those things. And you see that they, they, they could lose their livelihood or they could lose whatever they, they're, that's happening to them. You can't just turn a blind eye to them, but you need to be able to divorce your own personal thoughts and feelings and still answer the duty of our fellow man. 
to help and assist them. The idea here is that you can't root for the destruction of our enemies and be passive. And let's be honest. Because when we do that, what happens is there might be someone that you have come in collision with so many times and you know that they are just not the best person. And so culturally, sometimes we look at someone like, ha it's karma. Look, whatever you, whatever you reaped or whatever you sowed, you are now reaping. And we're celebrating those things. But you know what? That puts you in a position of judge and that puts you in a position of an avenger. And that is not what we are called to be. The Lord is speaking to the people of Israel who are supposed to be seen as a tribe, the people who love and care for one another. And there is leeway here to know that even within families, even within tribes, people come in collision with one another. But even when that is, we need to see and remember that all of us are created in the image of God. And all of us have a spark of the divine and it reflects our creator. So out of awe for our God, we should still answer the duty to care for others. The principle here is that we are not to position ourselves as the judge. We are not to hold on to grudges. We are not to be the ones who root for vengeance in the lives of our enemies. Leviticus 19 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then, colon, I am the Lord. So think about people who have wronged you. Think about people who, who have hurt you, who have cut you, and all those things, and yet you have the opportunity to assist at some capacity. Not to compromise the justice of God, but there are times that you may be put in a position to be able to help. And instead of sitting back and be like, ha ha, look at this, just, your life just crumbled upon you, you are called to step in and to help. There's no ifs, there's no ands, there's no buts. That statement in Leviticus ends with, I am the Lord. As in, he makes that statement based on the God of the universe's own authority. There's no arguing with that. So for us, we need to remember that instead of rooting for vengeance or rooting for the comeuppance of our enemies, we pray for them and we trust that God is the one who brings vengeance. See, vengeance belongs to the Lord. In Psalm 94, verse 1, it says, O Lord, God of vengeance, O vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. That is a title given to our God. That our God is the avenger. He is the great one that we trust in to see justice be done. So we don't need to take that upon ourselves and to root, to root for the destruction of others. Now we come to verses 6 through 8, and we're, we're going to look at the cause of those who are in the right. Verse 6 says, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge. 
And do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not equip the wicked. So those two verses we see a summary of the things we've already covered. That God doesn't want us to lie, doesn't want us to cheat, doesn't want us to steal, and we trust in his justice, we trust in his vengeance. Then verse 8, it ends with, And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. That right there is the reason for it. All of this makes, is why all of this is important. That the Lord's justice, the laws, his commands, his system that he has put in place, it is a tool for us to fight for what is right. And when we start to compromise that, we compromise our own rules, our own integrity, we rob ourselves, we subvert ourselves from the possibility of fighting and doing what is right. You cut the limb out from underneath you, the limb that you are sitting on. And this idea, this, this idea of justice is the idea that God has given us his rules, his commands, so that we can be blessed. Because when it comes to the idea of justice, there are two things that need to be remembered about the concept of justice. Number one is that justice is the standard by which penalties are assigned. As in, that's what we know that when someone does wrong, this is what needs to be done in order to make things fair and just. But the other side of justice is that it is the standard by which blessings are also passed out, or where advantages are also passed out. So God's justice, his laws, his rules, it's from the standards that God sets that we know how we make things right when those who violate it violate it, but also how we know who is blessed because those who fall along with it. Now, if you're listening along, you might be thinking to yourself, man, I can't believe we're finally talking about justice in our church. Look at all the things that are happening in our world. We need to be talking about justice because our world is broken, and you're right. Our world is deeply, deeply broken. But we need to be absolutely clear that when we are speaking of justice, when we are speaking about the justice of God and his laws, his commandments, we are speaking about the Lord's justice. You know, if, if justice is the standard by which we know blessing and curse, the question is, who sets the standard? And that is the battle of our world today. Who sets the standard. Right now, in our very world, there is a great battle between essentially just two thoughts, two camps. I learned this from, from a professor a while ago, that essentially in our world, there are only two religions. It is either God is the measure of all things, or it is man who is the measure of all things. For those of us who know the God of the universe, who knows that this universe was created by the God of heaven and earth, the Alpha and the Omega, we know that we stand before him and we know that ultimately he is the judge and it is by his standard, his word, his very word that he has revealed to us that it is his justice that we are to adhere to and to stick with even though sometimes it's hard. But right now we battle against secular humanism who says, no, it is man who sets the standard. 
And that is not what I'm talking about today. Man does not set the standard, as hard as that may be. We, as a Bible-believing church, we know that it is God who sets the standard and is for us to know his law, his rules, so that we are led to his grace, his blessing, and honestly, his discipline. Now, if you're following along and you, you have caution to what I just said, and which you should, you, you might be thinking to yourself, Andrew, I want to believe that the Bible and God's word, all that sets the standard for us, but what about all these people who, from a religious standpoint, they manipulate the Bible, they say all these things, all these man-made doctrines and all these things. How do we know? How do we know that when you're preaching the word of God, that's really the word of God, it's not just someone making something up to make me feel bad. How do I know that someone out there isn't just saying things out of the Bible and it's just manipulating me and trying to control me? That is a great question. And honestly, you should be thinking about that often. People who come and preach the word or not, they're not above corruption. It is very possible that even those with the greatest of intent could get something wrong. That is why we, as Bible-believing Christians, we engage in the science of interpretation. There is a big fancy word called hermeneutics, which there's actually a science to how we study the word of God. Because there are rules, there are a systematic approach in how we do things, because without it, we're left with people who just hold on to tradition and superstition, and honestly, that hurts more people down the road than it actually helps. If you know me, you know that much of my Christian walk started with a church who told me a lot of things that were wrong. He told me a lot of things about how God would never allow a family to be divorced or how God would never do X, Y, or Z because we're Christians and Christians are always blessed by God. People of God who have with the best of intentions will make things up that sound Christian that honestly do far more damage than any other secular humanist could ever do because it gives us a sense of betrayal. The challenge there, then, is if, if, this, if this is a call to God's authority and God's justice and how we are not to pervert it, the challenge for us, then, is to be people who practice, who learn, who engage in the word, who question things but also seek truth above, above all other things. That's, that's about the justice of God and we're defining that, but let's, let's, let's bring this home. Let's, let's start to land this plane. <laughs> the gospel in the ninth commandment is something that we, we need to see. Because at the beginning of this message, I, I wanted to remind everyone that this series isn't about feeling guilt or shame or, or any of these things. When really, when we look at the standards of God, for those of us who are no longer under the Old Testament way of doing things, but for those of us who live here in 2021, for those of us who follow God, for those of us who claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, you know as well as I do that we are covered by the blood of Christ. That we no longer have to deal with the guilt and shame of not holding things up to the way we, sh we, we need to be. That we don't need to feel the guilt and shame of lying. But the gospel then frees us to examine our lying and to examine the intent of our hearts underneath it. 
if it's about perverting justice or if it's about lying and if it's about these things, what's beautiful about this commandment is that it gives us an opportunity to meditate on why we break these laws so that God can address the deeper issues underneath. You know, lying is a universal thing. Lying is something that we don't have to be taught to do. As a matter of fact, um, I, children, children are actually the best example of how we know that people are the worst. Right? And this is how I mean that. Years ago, I was with one of my friends, and he had a three-year-old son. And his, that, that three-year-old son had a cousin who was also three. They came over, and they were hanging out in their plan. And my friend brought out these bubble wands. He said, hey guys, we're going to go to the park and we're going to play with these bubble wands. This could be a great time. Don't open the packaging yet. I need to go put together our backpack and we're, we're going to go out to the park. And everyone was like, oh, okay, I'm really excited about this. Well, that guy left and the two boys were kind of just staring at the wands. And eventually the cousin, the cousin walked over, picked up the bubble wand and started opening the packaging. And the son of my friend looked at him and goes, no, what are you doing? Don't do that. And his cousin goes, come on, come on, let's do this. And then the guy was like, all right. So there they are, both opening the packaging. And they start to open it, and they start to wave it around, making bubbles and a mess in the living room. I'm watching this whole thing. I I guess I could have intervened, but I didn't. (laughs) Eventually, my friend comes back in the room and goes, what? I told you not to open this. Who told you to do this? I said we were going to the park. Who, which, one of you, which one of you started? And the cousin goes and points to the son. And that's when I finally intervened. I'm like, no, that's not what happened. And I explained the whole situation. Why did that kid lie? If you really think about it, that kid lied because he knew he was in trouble. He knew that he was going to face emotional pain because of a poor choice he made. You know why we lie? We lie because we don't want to face certain things. We don't want to face the repercussions of our decisions. We lie for others sometimes because we don't believe that God is going to care for them. We lie sometimes because we are selfish and we want personal gain. We lie because maybe we're scared and we're scared of a crowd. The ninth commandment leads us to the gospel and it gives us this universal approach to know there is a mistrust in our hearts. And instead of feeling guilt or shame about the fact that you lied because you were covered by the blood of Jesus, I would say take this moment to repent and to let the Lord reveal to you why. Why you did that. Because as you are revealed to your, of your mis, misbelief, in that very moment, you can be honest with God. Now, God, I don't believe that you're going to care for me. Or I don't believe that you're going to care for my friend. Or I don't believe that you've given me everything I need. And in that is a very real and raw conversation that you begin to have with God. And then you can start to rejoice with the Lord. Because he will show up and answer He will continue to break you and mold you into more of Jesus. That is why I'm excited about the ninth commandment because it's this universal sin that we all have, but yet it allows us to deal. 
It allows us to have a genuine faith that is developed. So as I bring this to a close, I would, I would encourage you to reflect on why you've lied, I guess, or why you may have subverted the justice of God. Maybe you've never even heard of that before. But I would also, maybe you're, you're feeling uh, discouraged right now because maybe you're a person of integrity and you've been trying your best to uphold the laws and the standards of God and yet you continue to look around your world and you see all these other people who are doing much better than yourself. I get that. When I was in high school is when I felt the call into ministry. And so I started, a very down, I started down a very different path than all of my friends. And it felt like their lives were going ahead and going further than my own there as they were going to college and things. And I kept thinking, God, I'm trying to do what's right here. And yet I don't feel like I'm being blessed here. I don't, do, you, do you even see what's going on? Well, in that time of my life, I found Psalm 37. And to be honest with you, I return to this psalm all the time. Let me read this for you, and I would pray that you would just let these words sink into your heart. Psalm 37 says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Let's pray. Father God, I, I thank you for who you are. And I thank you, Lord, that you have given us your laws, your rules, your regulations, Lord, to, to reveal to us when we are foolish, when we are bullheaded, Lord, and when we are faithful. I pray, Father, that you would give us the courage Lord, that you would give us the wisdom, the discernment, Lord, and the humility to stand for you. But more importantly, Lord, I pray that, Lord, that you would give us the humility to be honest with you. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us why it is, Lord, that sometimes we feel like we have to take things upon ourselves, that you would reveal to us why we don't trust or why we don't believe, Father. Not that you would beat us up, Lord, so that you can begin to work in us. Father, I pray for those who are listening now. I just pray a blessing on them. In your name I pray. Amen.